Well, let us now uh, continue in our study of the book of Acts. This is an amazing book, a challenging book. I think in some ways it's more challenging than the book of Revelation, which, by the way, was the one book that John Calvin did not write on, nor did many others. But the book of Acts is certainly one that is well worth our studying together. And so we're going to start off by our reading the passage. So let me read it. Acts 2, beginning at verse 5 to verse 13. Continuing on the day of Pentecost in the upper room. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the dwellers in Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Pamphylia in Egypt and in the parts of Libya about Cyrene and strangers of Rome, <coughs> wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Others, mocking, said, These men are full of new wine. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray again. Father, but our souls. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> Wonderful works of God. Wonderful works of God. Such as His creation. Such as His providence. Such as His sovereign rulership and dominion over the universe. Even now in the midst of tur turmoil and chaos on the earth. <coughs> he is an August rain. And Christ at His right hand. The Prince of Peace in his judgment one day. And as we will see intimated here and later expounded upon in Peter's sermon, his redemption, his salvation. Nations of Jews were gathered in Jerusalem at Pentecost. The chapter started out, as we took note, by describing the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the 120 disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ gathered in the upper room. We've already read verses 5 through 8, so it would not be necessary to reread it. But it speaks here of how these who are gathered from all over the Mediterranean world heard the wonderful works of God, whatever those were. And basically, they were all the works of God, short of redemption. How's that? In their own dialect. 
This was not necessarily in their main tongue. Like, for example, my main tongue is English, but when I go to the Philippines, I am able to barely make out speaking the dialect of Tagalog, which is their main language, actually, but it's like a dialect to me. It's the voice of God in that dialect from which they fared. Although, probably, many of them, if not all of them, knew Greek and Aramaic, as they had to. For when Peter would preach, they understood his preaching, which was not in those dialects from which they fared. So these were languages or dialects. Dialectos is the word. Never taught to those 120 disciples, and it was not just the 12. They spoke as the Spirit gave them utterance. That was a miracle. They could be heard from the windows and from the balcony that was probably there outside of the upper room, perhaps on the roof, and in the temple courts that possibly the upper room was attached to, as we noted previously. And what they were hearing was scripture. Scripture like, for example, Exodus 15.11. Turn to Exodus 15.11. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Thou stretchest out thy right hand, the earth, is, the earth swallow them. Thou in thy mercy hast led forth the people which thou hast redeemed. Thou hast guided them in thy strength unto thy holy habitation. Or another one, Psalm 45. Psalm 45, 40, verse 5. Many, O Lord, my God, are thy wonderful works which thou hast done, and thy thoughts which are to usward. They cannot be reckoned up in order unto thee. I, if I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. How precious also are thy thoughts to me. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they are more than the sand. How great is our God. And 107, Psalm 107, 21 and 22. These are what they were hearing. These were the blessings that were being pronounced or that were being chanted and perhaps even sung as the pilgrims made their way to the temple. So Psalm 100. 7, 21, and 22. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men and let them sacrifice the sacrifice of thanksgiving and declare his works with rejoicing. This was a joyful time. This was a time of rejoicing. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. But behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? Uh, hmm. <laughs> that puts a twist on it. Maybe, maybe enhances the significance 
of their being used in this miraculous way, because everyone noted this had to be a miracle. There's no other way to explain it. Galileans, those that dwell in northern Israel beside the Sea of Galilee, uneducated men, unsophisticated by the standards of southern Judea, who spoke with this distinct regional guttural accent, like, we know you. We know where y'all are from. <laughs> when Galileans spoke in their hometown or provincial dialects, they were astonished, the people were, because it was like out of, with, with so much division uh, of, amongst them previously, as, uh, as uh, sheep that were scattered when the shepherd was smitten on the cross. Stott wrote, quote, Ever since the early church fathers, commentators have seen the blessing of Pentecost as a deliberate and dramatic reversal and not get together and try to, to take heaven by storm, right? Now it would be gathered, but in God's way, in God's time, to God's glory. Second, they gathered in Jerusalem on a special day to celebrate the Shavuot, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. It's been a while since I took Hebrew. Shavuot. There it is. There you go. Shavuot. Does that sound Hebrew to you? <laughs> That's about the extent of the accent you're going to get from me. Uh, but I'll tell you what. It's just a shade uh, below my Tagalog accent. Okay, so. The Feast of Weeks, as it's called. The Feast of Weeks. Uh, probably around the time of May and early June. Late May and early June. It means sevens. The number seven, since it was seven weeks since the Passover, which preceded another feast, the Peshat. And that's the day that Yahweh freed the Jews from Egypt, the anniversary of the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai. Do you remember the Torah? Remember the law on the two tablets? In Deuteronomy 16 12, it says, And thou shalt remember that thou was a bondsman in Egypt, and thou shalt observe and do these statutes. In other words, you were a slave before. Now you're free. Use your freedom, not as a, uh, a basis for, for, for laziness and idolatry and indolence and carelessness, but use it responsibly in service of God. Walk into all pleasing whereinto you are called. It is also, one more thing, and it's also called the Feast of Ingathering. You've heard that, I think marking the end of the barley season uh, the, the, and, and also the wheat harvest of Israel in Exodus 34, 22. And thou shalt observe the, week, the feast of weeks, of the week sevens, and of the first fruits of wheat harvest and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. You have to gather the harvest, right? You don't just leave it out there because it's going to spoil. It's going to rot. You gather it just like we're to gather souls when the Lord says gather them because white is the harvest and the labors are few. Pray therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth labors into his harvest. The name Pentecost which is another name associated with this occasion as we've already heard and even discussed is the Greek for Shavuot and it literally means 50. Now why 50? When it's seven weeks, which is 
49 days. Well, because if you include the day of Passover, that makes it 50, see? That's how that comes in, Pentecost. Again, when God would gather a harvest of souls for his kingdom, which he is about to do. We need to study revival if we want revival, because we learn from the past, right? And also we learn from the mistakes of the past when there was not this studying and praying over revival in the church. Probably many of the same people who gathered at the Passover were gathering at this holiday. Perhaps they didn't even go home, but, but stuck around during those seven weeks. And so they were part of the mob that demanded the execution of the one who was their very Messiah. And we will see how Peter will include this fact or factor in his premier sermon that's yet to come, shortly to come. On Shavuot, in the Old Testament, God wrote the commandments on tables of stone on the mount, as I mentioned. In Pentecost, New Testament, God would write his law on fleshly tables of the heart. For as much as you're manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, says Paul, written not with ink, but with the Spirit, the difference between true salvation and false profession. It is the difference between profession of faith, a mere profession of Christ, and a true possession Three, there were 50 nations. Count them. In your Bible. This is where it's at. This is how the Spirit works. He doesn't work apart from the Word. And so in Acts chapter 2, let's count 15, shall we? One, Parthians. Two, Medes. Three, Elamites. Four, dwellers in Mesopotamia. Five, dwellers in Judea. Egypt. I'm, I stopped counting, sorry. <laughs> I hope you're still counting. Uh, in parts of Libya, about Cyrene. And then also strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes. Well, you know what, there might have been more, but no, there are actually, take my word for it, 15, okay? <laughs> Thus saith the Lord. <laughs> okay. There may have been others, of course, uh, and especially in light of verse 5, when... Luke talks about how these were devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now, that could be what's called a hyperbole. It's like an exaggeration to make a point. Just like it says in another place that, uh, that uh, all, all nations sought after Christ. That wasn't true. Uh, and, and that's in the book of Luke. Uh, but, but many, many did. Many did. Many nations here were represented in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And these were devout men. They were serious. They were orthodox, as we would call them, versus reformed. Now, reformed Jew is different than reformed today in the Protestant church, of course, uh, because uh, uh, reformed back then was uh, reformed from their uh, orthodox ways, okay? So these represented here were those who wanted to be at this 
occasion and who made the effort, just like we make an effort to be here under the word of God, or we make an effort to attend these very important occasions, venues that, that are uh, life-changing, that could change dramatically what is happening in the church and in the nation. We start with Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those that live in modern-day Iran. Parthian, Parthia was in northeastern Iran. Elam is in the south by the Persian Gulf. And they were descendants of the deportees at the fall of the ten tribes of the northern kingdom. Remember how, how Israel was divided into two kingdoms, northern and southern. Northern was the ten tribes, and then the southern, the, the, the other two. Uh, back in the 8th and 7th century B.C. by the Assyrians. They were terrors. They were terrors. This is why, if you remember, Jonah didn't want to give the gospel to them. Because he, he didn't want them to be saved. He didn't think they deserved salvation. And the truth is, who does? <laughs> but you know what? God could save to the uttermost, those that are to the guttermost. That's a saying I, I, that comes to the top of my head. God could save to the uttermost those that are in the guttermost. So do not exclude anyone because the truth is God could save anyone. And it's oftentimes those that are the ostracized of society, those that are on the fringe of society, those that are the sinners and the publicans in Christ's day that the Lord works in first. Enter the kingdom before the rest. But this, these ten tribes would be not that long afterwards joined by the other two tribes of the southern kingdom of Judah who would be captured by Nebuchadnezzar. And then the captivity would be complete. But these that are now represented in Jerusalem at Pentecost were those who did not return to Israel when the opportunity opened up itself, especially with King Cyrus uh, being so gracious and allowing the people of God to return to their covenant land. Mesopotamia, these Jews lived in what is modern-day Iraq, Kuwait, western Syria. At this time, Mesopotamia was under Roman dominion. Judea, of course, you know Judea. These are those who lived around Jerusalem, especially in that, uh, in what is presently Israel and Palestine. And they too were very clearly a tributary province of the Roman Empire, as noted in the Gospels, accounts of Christ's dealings with Pontius Pilate and the Roman army and the Roman government. Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, these are what are modern-day Turkey. Cappadocia is eastern-central Turkey. Pontus is the northwest on the Black Sea. Asia is the west on the Mediterranean. I wish I had a big map in the back here so you could see all of this. But that's, that's okay. And Pamphylia is located on the south-central coast. All of these likewise were Roman provinces. Egypt, faithful Jews lived, yes, in what is today Egypt. They went back to Egypt or were taken back 
as slaves even. Uh, this too was under Roman jurisdiction at the time. And Cyrene, those who lived around the city of Cyrene, modern day Libya on the north coast of Africa. Actually this province, or actually there are three provinces, Roman provinces. Cyrenaica, which is in the west, Tripolitania, which is northwest, where you get the capital Tripoli, and then Fezzan, which is in the south. And you're probably thinking, what, what is this geography lesson here? Well, if it wasn't in the Bible, I wouldn't be telling it. And it's good to know what God is doing because these nations are unbeknownst to them, coming to a place where they're going to all be, where they're going to hear the gospel. So bear with me. We're down to our last two. Rome. Jews living in the capital of Rome. There was a Jewish colony in Rome at this time, probably from immigrants from Europe that wanted to live there, who were able to live there, who could afford to live there, or move there and live there. Possibly augmented later by Judeans who were brought by force by Pompey in 61 BC. By the way, a proselyte was a Gentile who was converted to Judaism, often called a God-fearer, such as you remember the Ethiopian eunuch who was converted by the gospel preached by Philip. And then lastly, the Cretans, those who lived on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean. And by the way, this is where John, the one surviving apostle, would be exiled to. Uh, it was also part of Libya. There is one more, the Arabs. They are part of present-day Saudi Arabia. <coughs> Let me give you one very important historical fact. King Aretas IV had a daughter who ended up being the wife of Tetrarch Herod Antipas. Remember that? Remember him? She was the wife of Antipas, who, who, whom Antipas divorced in order to take another man's wife, whose name was Herodias. John the baptizer called him out on his sin, right? And for it, he lost his head. For righteousness, he lost his head. Literally. Literally. Matthew 14, 3 and 4, it reads, For Herod had laid hold on John and bound him and put him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. For John said unto him, It is not lawful for thee to have and for that, it cost him not only his testimony, but his life. In conclusion, the disciples essentially would be giving to those pilgrims the law of God. Recall that this was also timely because this was the occasion of the giving of the law. The law which convicts us of our sin. The law which... Uh, which lays us low before our righteous and holy God, the law that condemns us to eternal hell. Something that is not being preached much in the modern church today, along with the wrath of God. In Romans 3, 19 and 20. Turn to it, please. Romans 3, 19 and 20. Now we know that whatsoever things, soever the law saith, that's the law of God, 
It saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. You will never, ever be able to obey the law perfectly. You know that. It's a given. It's self-evident. It's like the nose in your face. You can't do it. And yet, man's overall man-made religion would have us to believe that that is how we attain merit in order to be with God in heaven. It will only land you in hell because by the law is the knowledge of sin. In other words, you will only see how you are a wretched and miserable sinner before the eyes of a holy, a perfectly holy God. And that your only hope is in Christ. Which brings us to another fact, and that is this. And that is that the law is a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. It says that in Galatians 3, 23 and 24. Galatians 3, 23 and 24. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. <coughs> but after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. I should read verse 23. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. The law is what points us to Christ, if I could summarize it that way. It is the pedagogia. It is the schoolmaster. Someone likened it to like the, of course they didn't have this back then, like the school bus driver that takes you to school. So the law takes us to the school of Christ. The law takes us to Christ, where we may be saved, where we may be justified by faith. In Christ alone, by grace alone, by the power of the Spirit alone, to the glory of God alone. And that's where we need to go. If we stop with the law, it's over. There were those during the frontier times during the days of the campfire revivals that would spend a whole week preaching the law of God. And then they would save the gospel for the last night. Well, what if somebody died during that week and never heard the gospel? One should always have both the law and the gospel. The law to show us our need of Christ and then the gospel to show us Christ. And that's why my allusion to the hymn where it says that in this holy book we find the Lord. If you're not reading the word to find Christ, as Luther would talk about how he searched for Christ in every nook and cranny of scripture, then you're looking in the wrong place. You shouldn't be reading the scriptures. You should be reading Esquire or an almanac, okay? but not the Word of God. If you're going to read the Word of God, then read it for the purpose that it is designed. And it is designed to point you to Jesus Christ alone for salvation, without whom you are lost. And I know I'm talking to the choir. 
sorry about that. But who knows? Maybe I'm not. But even so, it doesn't hurt to hear the gospel again because it is the old, old story of Jesus and his love. Praise God. And so while the law convicts and condemns sinners, the gospel converts and saves sinners. And that would follow. That would follow shortly the preaching of Peter. What an what a tremendous, powerful preaching he did that transformed the world. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith that is written, the just shall live by faith. That is the cry word of the Protestant Reformation, by the way. Another tremendous revival. From this time forward, God's people would come from all over the world. And not from one nation only. Because those who were converted, guess what? Fanned out and brought that message of hope cheer and joy to their families and to those in their synagogues who would be joined to Christ church and be made part of the body of Christ. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Do you have this most wonderful work of God in your life? And that is redemption and salvation by his blood and his righteousness. You have Christ shall we pray. Father in heaven, oh, may we be stirred up in our hearts with love, with compassion and passion for you and also for others, for others who are made in your image, for others who are your people who have been remade into the image of Christ and those who are yet unsaved, yet to be born again. Oh, Lord, May you stir us up with love divine, love unceasing, love that is not transcended by anything, for it is the love of God which is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given unto us in Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. Let's sing.